Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Well, let's jump into the Word here tonight. As I mentioned, we'll be in Genesis chapter 16. Lord willing, we'll get through 16 and 17 tonight um, as we're... uh, uh, I think last week we tackled a couple of uh, chapters in Genesis as well. And so here tonight as we pick up, uh, remember we're, we're, we're now very much into the life of Abram, this man who was called out of a place called Ur and... Um, and he, he was called out from a, from a pagan land. He was, he was an individual, a man who got identified and who called and who set apart and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring from you uh, a people who are called by my name, uh, a people who are set apart. And so God is, is really working his plan of salvation that we've considered from the very beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning of Genesis. It's now starting to unfold through the man Abram, who he has promised will have a son, a promised son, who from that son will come our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we know that uh, it's a unique situation, Abram himself being an older gentleman. Now, people at this time were, were living longer than what we would now, but even 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 though that is the case, he's, he's still kind of even old by those standards. He's advanced in years, and he knows that. He's recognized that, both he and his wife. And so the fact that he is uh, here in this moment, as we begin our study tonight in chapter 16, he's a man by the name of Abram, which means exalted father, yet kind of interesting because he doesn't even yet have a son. We dealt with that there in, in, in chapters uh, 14 and 15. Abram really kind of crying out to God, saying, you, you, and I paraphrase, you, you keep saying this about me, but I don't even have an heir. Right? And, and, and kind of thinking, God's, God's forgotten about me. God, do you even know? Do you, you keep telling me that there's this promise that you're going to do this work, but nothing's happened. It's got to be humiliating, quite honestly, for Abram. Because we know that he's a prominent man. We know that he deals and, and meets with a lot of people. People come through the area. That's how he has... Uh, now, we don't know exactly what it is that he's doing now in this area, but it seems as if he's established himself once again, that the blessing of God is upon him. And what? When he meets with these people who come in and they get to know him and they know that he's a pretty prosperous guy and they say, what's your name? And he says, Abram. And, and they know because they know the language. And they say, okay, you're an exalted father. Wow, tell me about your kids. And he says, I don't have any. Oh, well, that's interesting, right? I mean, think of anything maybe in your life that you felt the Lord was calling you to that you began to tell people about, and maybe it was kind of far-fetched. Maybe people thought, oh, I don't, I don't know if that's really going to happen, right? And there was this sense maybe from you of like, I don't know, it's kind of crazy, but I feel like God's, God's telling me to do this, or God's calling me to this or to that. And, and sometimes there's those moments where you find yourself questioning a little bit, God, did you really say that? Did you, you really want me to do this? And and see, so your, your faith then is tested. You, are you going to really trust the, the promises and, and, and praise God in His grace and His goodness and His kindness towards us and certainly towards Abram? He continues to remind Abram, even in Abram's missteps and his mistakes and his sin and a big one that we'll see here shortly, God is faithful because God has made a promise. God has made a covenant. It's God who will keep His covenant. And um, 
So we're picking up here tonight at yet another, we're on the heels, I should say, of, of a great blessing that God has, has shown up to Abram again and, and uh, he's sort of renewed this covenant. He's reminded Abram of the covenant, but now once again some time has gone by and we'll see very quickly here how uh, with time can come some, some doubts and some discouragement. No doubt many of you are familiar with that as well. And so once, if you would, just agree with me again in prayer as we look to His Word. Father, as we, as we now turn our attention to Your Word, Lord, we ask for insight, Lord, by Your Spirit. We ask for uh, understanding such, Lord, that we could also make application um, that as we read Your Word, Lord, it would serve to strengthen us, to teach us, to challenge us, Lord, to... Uh, to push us, um, to do the various things that your word is able to do because it's living and active, um, because your spirit is at work. And so, Lord, um, move here in our midst tonight um, as we consider your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She'd borne him no children. I mean, just at the end of chapter 15, God said, on, and it says in verse 18 of chapter 15, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He made an agreement. They cut a covenant. You remember, Abram took all those different animals and he, he, he split them in half. He literally cut them in half. And, and God himself walked down the middle of those animals. This was a sign of a covenant. God was making an agreement It says, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, to your descendants, to your children, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, from Egypt all the way over to Babylon, I mean, to the Euphrates River, 300,000 acres of land, it's yours and for your children. And then all of a sudden we, we, we come from that promise into chapter 16, and it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. What a disappointment. And it says, And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And in verse 2, So Sarai said to Abram, listen, listen to what she says to him, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Now we consider again here what had just happened previously. God, God made a covenant. He made an everlasting covenant. He had sworn, as it were, on Himself. God made a promise, but time has gone by. And and what we need to remember, and of course it's easy for us as we read the text to be sort of reminded of this. It's another thing when we're in these situations ourselves. But we need to remember when God makes a promise, He's faithful to keep it. That's That's what His Word tells us. But here's the other thing. That when God makes a promise, rarely does He say, this is exactly when it's going to happen, or this is when it's going to come to fulfillment. Many of you may have your own experiences of God putting a calling on your life. I I, I know for me, I, I knew that there was the call to ministry. I knew God had called me to be a pastor. It was something that I had fought against for a long time. I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to be a pastor. I wanted to be anything but a pastor. But finally, I come to this place of surrender, and I say, okay, God, yes, I'll do it. And that was, that was in 2001. Right? It wasn't until 
2010 that I was even ordained as a pastor, but even at that point, a bivocational pastor, I shouldn't even say bivocational, volunteer pastor, right? But I had thought, Lord, I want to pastor a church. I want to pastor a church, Lord. I, want to, I, want to, I don't want to do all this. And, and, and it wasn't, it, that was 2010, and then it wasn't until 2016 that God said, here, we're talking 15 years. From the time that I said, yes, this is what I'm going to do, to when I felt as if I really began to realize what God had called me into. And so though God makes promises, though He calls, though He is absolutely faithful to keep His promises, we need to understand that it happens in His time. There is often, almost always, a delay between the promises of God and the fulfillment of that promise. Almost always. Now, why does he delay? What's, what's the deal, God? Like Abram in, in, in the last chapter we considered, and he's crying out, do, do you even know I don't, have a, I don't have a son? As if God was saying, oh, I totally forgot about that. You're right, let's take care of this. No, God knows, doesn't he? God knows. So why does he wait? Because his timing's perfect. Because he has a plan. And oftentimes, do you, do you think that in 2001, when I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it, as if somehow I was doing God a favor, okay, fine, all right, sure, God, I'll help you out. Right? Do you think I was ready? No. 2010, was I ready? No. 2016, was I ready? <laughs> no. <laughs> Am I ready right now? No. But fortunately, right now, I know a whole lot more about the fact that I'm not, I'm, I'm not ready, Lord. You need to do this. You do it, Lord. Right? That's a work that God has done, preparing me and readying my heart and showing me how foolish I am and bringing people into my life like Pastor Roger who can remind me on a regular basis, don't, re don't forget, you are so disqualified, you're qualified. Right? And so God does things in our life during this time. And he's doing wonderful things in Abram's life to, to shape him and to mold him. But here's the thing. They are getting old. Abram at this point is 86. Sarah is 76. And here's what they begin to think. It just must not be happening for us. Maybe we, we misunderstood. We didn't get it right. And we begin to, to, to heap upon ourselves all the various aspects of doubt that the enemy whispers into our ears, and then we begin to believe it. And, and for Sarai, look, look what this is. She says, she says, the Lord has restrained me. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel a little bit like maybe, the, that maybe God is holding something back? Holding you back? preventing you from doing something. Lord, this was my heart's desire. I thought you were giving this to me, Lord. I thought you were doing this work. Lord, I was, I, I was obedient, God. I said I would do this. And what, what, what's, the, what's the deal? What's happening? And we, and we begin to convince ourselves that it really is God who's just sort of holding something back from us. And certainly, if we believe and trust that God is all-powerful and that He does have a plan and a purpose, well then, yeah, it could certainly be the case that, yes, God has sort of prevented her from getting pregnant at this time. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a very different thing to say, okay, Lord, I'm just trusting in your timing versus, Lord, you're, you're keeping this from me. And here's the thing that we need to pay attention to right here at the very beginning of this and just the first two verses is 
Because this really sets the stage. I mean, it's so abrupt here. The transition from the reminder of the covenant to the beginning of chapter 16, it's so abrupt that you know you just all of a sudden, boom, Sarah is saying, the Lord's, Lord's keeping this from me. He's restraining me from bearing children. And when we begin to look at our circumstances and when we begin to listen to uh, the, the, the lies of the enemy and the doubt that begins to creep in, it, it begins to change a lot of the ways in which we operate, how we pursue the Lord, what we think, how we feel. And when we begin to feel this way, when we begin to sort of give way to the belief that God is doing this, God is, God is, God is restraining me, well, then oftentimes what we begin to then do is take matters into our own hands. Because we want something so desperately and we've convinced ourselves that of, of the various reasons for the circumstances and so now we've got to do something about it, right? And, and, we, and we really, if, 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 if we are honest with ourselves, we take matters into our own hands in a whole lot of different ways. I'd identify three ways for us tonight and, and I would call these ways, we'd take matters into our own hands in our prayers, in our plans, and in our performance, how do we take matters into our own hands when we pray? Well, how is it that you pray? During this last week on Saturday, as the men came together, we talked a good bit about prayer, and I mentioned that there was something I was going to consider here on, on Wednesday night, and, and I even alluded to it in our prayer time before the message. But I want us to think about this. There was a really, really good question that someone asked that we see recorded in Scripture. It was asked by the disciples of Jesus. And we know it was a good question because sometimes they ask questions and Jesus responds a little bit differently. He redirects them. And then other times they ask questions and we see that Jesus responds. He answers their question. And it's when he does that that we know, okay, they asked a good question. The Lord was pleased with that question. And one of the questions they asked him was, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. In effect, they said, Lord, how are we supposed to pray? And Jesus answers that and he gives a model for prayer. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Really, it should be the disciples' prayer. The Lord's Prayer, I believe, is found in John 17. That's the Lord's Prayer that we have insight into the longest prayer of Jesus that's recorded in Scripture. But what I would call the disciples' prayer is when Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this manner. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He starts there with praise, right? Jesus tells us when you start to pray, praise. Give praise first and foremost. Just don't, don't just jump into the things that you need or the things that you want. Give God praise. And that should always be a pattern for our prayer. If you go to God in prayer and you don't begin with praise, change that. Change how you approach God. Remember that you're coming before a holy and righteous God. And the very privilege of you coming before His throne of grace is, is only on the merits of the, the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fact that He died for you. That's the reason you get to come to Him. And so when you do, even though He's excited to hear from you, even though He wants you to come to Him, come to Him with a sense of, I don't deserve to be here. But you, Lord Jesus, have done this for me. Right? And so you praise Him. And then what's the very next thing that He says? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What are we praying when we pray that? If Jesus says this is the manner in which you're to pray, and, and the things that are the things that we spend most of our time on, which is intercession and request, doesn't really come until the end of that model prayer. At the beginning, rather, it's praise, and then it's thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you pray that way? 
Was Sarai praying that way? Was Abram praying that way? Do I pray that way? No, far too often I take matters into my own hands as it pertains to my prayers and I begin to pray this way. Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you do this? Lord, would you change this? Lord, would you bless this? I don't say... And, and, and here, sometimes some of the greatest prayers that we can offer up to the Lord are, God, I love you, I praise you, I thank you, and I have no idea what else I'm supposed to do right now other than to just sit here and wait on you. Right? That's a good prayer sometimes. Or, Lord, I am entirely lost. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Lord, I, I'm trying to fix this in my own strength, and I can't, Lord. I just need you to work. I need you, Lord, to go before me. Would you go before me? Would you fix this, Lord? Lord, I don't want my plans. I don't want it my way. I've been doing it my way for too long. And Lord, I've screwed everything up. Lord, I want what you have for me. The the most wonderful prayers, I believe, are those prayers that we we bring in in faith, yes, but, but from a place of surrender. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what we're saying is, Lord, I want what you have. I want what you want. I want your will done. I want your plan, not my own. And even, and and we can only pray this when we fully considered and we've counted the cost and we understand that, Lord, your plan might be so different from my plan. And from my perspective, your plan might hurt and it might cost me something and I might have to sacrifice something. I might lose something. But I know and I believe and I trust because you are good that whatever your plan is, it's better than those things. And that the feelings that I'll experience in that loss, those things that I might grieve that I've been holding on to so tightly, that, Lord, I will get over it because what you have is better. And so, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing, Lord, for you to turn my life upside down. Lord, I'm willing for you to mess with my circumstances. I'm willing, Lord, for you to do whatever is necessary in my life to get me to that place you want me to be. Now, those are dangerous prayers. Those are scary prayers. But those are prayers that I absolutely believe he will answer. And he loves it when we come to him in such surrender. And I fear that far too often, at least in my life, that I avoid those types of prayers and I seek to impose my will upon God through prayer, believing that somehow my prayers change God and change His plans. And you know, sometimes in His grace, I think sometimes He goes, okay, you want this? I'll give this to you. I do. I think sometimes, he's, I think sometimes God says, I'll, I'll answer this. Go, here you go. I think God's that good. But I think other times, we, I just find myself in this sort of hamster wheel thing just going and going and going and going and going and I don't know what's happening. I don't know why this isn't changing. And finally I come to this place where I'm like, okay, God, I give up. And so we take matters into our own hands. We get to this place where we don't think what God said he was going to do, he's going to do. We begin to believe doubts from the enemy. We, 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 we begin to look at our circumstances and convince ourselves of all the reasons why maybe what God said doesn't make sense. And, and then we look to make things happen and we seek to make things happen in our prayers and we seek to make things happen in our plans now those two things often go hand in hand but but what about our plans do we do we allow the lord to establish our plans right and what do i mean by that well i mean when you're making your plans when you've not yet even surrendered those things to the lord when you've not sought him in prayer but you're just setting out for your day saying these are the things that i need to do this is the way that i need to approach it this is how i'm going to get it done this is what i'm going to do 
we, again, we take our plans and we impose them upon God. And then oftentimes we do go into prayer from there and we just say, okay, God, would you just bless this? Thank you, amen. And we move on. And, you know, and there's this interesting thing. I was listening today to a, a podcast and, and because it's, it continues to be brought to my attention, different people asking questions about it, different people having experience with it, with their family members. And I was listening to this podcast uh, on this issue of what's called, uh, the, the modern day vernacular for it is called manifesting. Manifesting, okay? This is, this is a popular movement within sort of new age uh, religious circles today. And, and uh, it, it, it's just the same old thing repackaged again, which is really just uh, uh, the power of positive thinking, the law of attraction. Uh, it's been around for hundreds of years in different ways, but it's this idea that if I, if I, if I think it enough, if I believe it enough, if I say it enough, uh, if I write it down, some people, they write letters to the universe and just put it out into the universe and trust the universe to respond, right? If they believe all these things and say it enough that it will begin to happen. Where do we see that within the church? Well, we see it within the prosperity gospel. We see it within the name and acclaim it. You know, hey, just believe it. Did, did, did Sarah manifest a baby? No. Did she not have a baby because of her negative thinking? No. And, and what she's doing here is in large part what other people want to do today is they impose their will upon God as we say, well, we're just going to start to do it my way and make it happen. And this, this thinking's all around us. And so we do it in our prayers, we do it in our plans, and we do it in our performance. Now, what is performance? I needed a third P. Forget alliteration, right? So you could remember it. Really, it means in our actions, Right? We then, because we've, we've, we've planned it out our way, because we've approached God in our prayers our way, then we begin to take our steps our way. We begin to then do the different things that we want to do, having not really surrendered those things to the Lord. And that's really what's happening here with Sarai first, and then Abram not, not functioning well in his position as leader of his home is, is getting sucked into this. And what we're seeing really is another Adam and Eve type situation unfold. So what is it that Sarah has convinced herself needs to happen? She says in the second part of, goodness, only verse 2, huh? <laughs> Woo! I have to pick it up. You guys need to stop talking so much. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. <laughs> and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. It's kind of interesting. Abram doesn't seem to put up a fight, right? Sarah's Sarah's plan that she has concocted here. Now listen, before we fault them too much, it's not entirely unheard of during this time to do something like this. It's sort of like a modern day surrogacy, okay? With, without, uh, the, without all the technology that we have today to actually make it a surrogacy. It's kind of how they looked at it because it was, at this time it's rooted in ownership, right? Because she, because Hagar is her maidservant, she technically has ownership over her. And so if, if Abram's to have a child through Hagar at Sarai's request and permission, then it's effectively hers. As foolish as that sounds, many people have convinced themselves of this. So this wasn't just some new concept that uh, Sarah had come up with. However, it was absolutely a concept that was rooted in, in the world's understanding. Okay? This is something they took from their pagan land. This was something common in Babylon. This was, this was where they had come from. That's why they had this idea. This is certainly not something that God had established as a good plan. And so here Sarai, or, or really both of them, um, had convinced themselves that this was the best way 
which is really what always happens when we are trying to align God's plan and his word with our own. Okay? So we got to think, listen, it, it starts with these little things where we're imposing our views upon God, but then it just continues to grow. And why do you think we have this thing today called new evangelicalism? Why do we today have so many people in our culture that sort of want to uh, slap Jesus on as a, as a bumper sticker in order to get some you know, support or uh, be sort of in with a particular crowd, but, they, but, but like Pharisees, right, their, their lips profess one thing and their hearts are far from him why do we have such liberal theology today why is it that within the church today we see that people who say i love jesus but will will, but will proudly stand for uh, lgbtq issues for abortion for all of these different issues right how how can how can that happen well, because people within the church over time have continued to say, well, well, this, this feels right or this doesn't feel right, and so I'm going to take my views and I'm going to impose them upon the Word, which really, the technical term for that is eisegesis. Exegesis is good study pulling out from Scripture what it says. Eisegesis is when we take our views and our perspective and our cultural context and put it upon the Scriptures and make it say what we want it to say. And so these are all the things that are happening. These aren't new concepts. These are old concepts. They've been there from the beginning of time. It, it was there in the garden. As, as God's word was twisted to suit, their sel- to suit themselves. And so here, Sarah convinces herself of all these different things and says, here, this is going to be a good plan, and Abram sadly agrees with it. And so then, verse 3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Sarai's name means contentious. That's what her name means. And this name proves to be true here when the plan that they had concocted came to pass. For as much as Sarai here had maybe thought that this was a good idea, it became far too much for her to bear when now Hagar was with child. It was sort of this moment after the sin, right, of, oh, that was not a good idea. Now, why did Sarai do it? I mean, we, we, we certainly can see within Scripture, based off of what she says, that the Lord has restrained me from childbirth, and, and so this is the way in which to have a child. But we don't have a great sense of, 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 of Sarai's mindset through this all. Did, did she really want Abram to have a child with, with, with Hagar? thinking that maybe, yes, if, I, if, I, if under this sort of set of circumstances that this will fulfill my longing? Is that what she, did she really think, hey, it was going to satisfy me? Was she maybe hoping that Abram was going to say, no, that's a terrible idea. We'll just continue to be patient and, and maybe just then sort of help with an insecurity in her own life? Was it maybe that it was, even though the consequences were going to be uh, maybe kind of tough. It was a way for her to see is, is this my problem or is this his problem, right? Maybe, maybe if Hagar doesn't get pregnant, maybe then I can know that it's, it's Abram and not me. We, we, we don't know for sure what's happening here, but what we must understand is that when we step outside of the will of God, no longer abiding in him, when we indulge in sin, which is willful disobedience, what may seem right and good for a moment quickly fades to regret. 
And we see that so consistently in any of our sin that when we indulge it, when we indulge the flesh, we find ourselves so quickly afterward going, man, why did I do that? Now Sarai then here in verse 5 says to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my, my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. And so I think really what's happening here too is that Sarai's thinking, uh, especially if it's, whether or not this was her intent to begin with, it likely is the way that it turned out that now Hagar can sort of look at Sarai and say, uh, see, it's, it was her problem, right? Abram's, Abram's able to, to have children. It, it's, it's clearly Sarai. And so now Sarai's experiencing, she's sort of feeling this sense of, of shame now, even more so, right? And so she says, uh, I've become despised in her eyes, and the Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Abram kind of, now in this situation, he sort of washes his hands of the matter thinking probably to some degree, this was your idea. And so he says, well, she's your maidservant, then you do what you got to do. And so then Sarai, with Scripture tells us, deals harshly, so harshly that I mean, whatever it is that, that Hagar then says, I, I got to get out of here. And, and here's the thing, as we look at this scenario, I mean, we, some of you are very familiar with this passage of Scripture, and so it's become something that with, you know, with familiarity, right, we've become sort of... Um, in some respects, maybe desensitized to it. And I got to tell you, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the insecurities that Sarai was experiencing. No doubt they were great. I don't, I don't know the frustration maybe that Abram uh, was dealing with. But to be Hagar in this moment, this is really hard, right? I mean, our hearts have got to go out to this young woman. And I really think, I mean, guys, an, an entire study could probably be done on just Hagar. Um, because really, for her, what a difficult lot in life. I mean, she, she's a slave. She's given, probably, to Abram and Sarai during their time in Egypt. So now she's also away from her home, whatever that home was, right? She's, she's forced, at, at least in some respects, there may have been, we don't know what the relationship was there. Maybe there was a willingness on her part to engage in this relationship with Abram to some degree. Um, but... but but even if so, there's still an aspect of this being a forced union. And then she's rejected through no fault of her own to find herself now in, in what amounts to, to her as probably an unplanned pregnancy with no home, no resources, no place to go. And guys, certainly as we look at this situation, if it's not obvious, we, sh we should go, man, we see, we see many similar scenarios today. And then, and not even to take it down this path extensively, but it's interesting because how does the world suggest then today that you deal with a situation like this? Just get rid of it, right? Just get rid of the problem. And, 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 and sadly, very much still today as I say that, I know that that can cause some to bristle a little bit, but, it, but it's the same scenario because today it is just treated as here's the problem, get rid of the problem without any real regard for what about the, the mother in this situation? What is she dealing with? And how do we best meet her needs? And how do we, how do we better understand what's happening and what's led to this, right? And so it, I can't help, especially just my own experiencing work, experience working in the pro-life world, that you look at this and you just say, man, this is, we see this every day. 
But, but then the wonderful thing is we come to this point and we really consider what's going on in Hagar's life and how terrible it is that she finds herself in this situation at this point is then what do we see happen next? And this is the wonderful thing that serves as such great instruction to us as the church today is the very next thing we see here, Sarai and Abram in their sinfulness, in their flesh. Praise God He's not done with them. Praise God for His grace and mercy. But here they send her away. She flees. And what's the very next thing that happens? Verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her. Man, praise God for that. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, verse 8, And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? And where are you going? Now, now first off, let's note here that Scripture says the angel of the Lord. Okay? It doesn't say an angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord. And this angel knows who she is and will shortly make promises to her. So who is this angel? This is Jesus. Once again, this is Jesus. This is pre-incarnate Jesus. God the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit, right? The Trinity. This is Jesus in pre-incarnate form who comes to her. And so this poor young woman, who goes to her? Jesus does. The very scenario that I just described, how sad it is, how unfortunate it is, how similar it is to so many situations still in our culture today, and Jesus is still going to these women today. Now, here's the interesting thing. is He, he asks, where have you come from? Where are you going? Right? Do you think he doesn't know? He knows. Think Genesis 3. <laughs> Remember? Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. Right? Some things have gone down. God's walking in the garden like he normally does. Hey, where are you guys? Why? Because that's who God is. God is so gracious in the way that he deals with us. He gives us the opportunity to say, I'm right here. This is what's going on. This is what happened, right? And so she says, I am fleeing. I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So she's on the run. Hagar's on the run. She's one. Listen, she is one who others have rejected. Her son is not the son of promise, not the one through whom the covenant would be made. So you could easily argue, just let her, just let her go. Just let her go. But what do we know of Jesus? That he'll leave 99 to go after the one, right? He will leave behind, in effect, Abram, who he has chosen, Sarai, who he has chosen, who he's still made a covenant to, that listen, here's what I'm going to do through, do through you. That you. You have the promised line. And so even though in every respect, Hagar is in a situation now entirely of your guys' making, I'm going to go after her because I care about her. And, and we know that Jesus, when he leaves the 99 to go after the one, he goes so that he might bring them back into the fold. And so in verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. He wants to bring, he, he, we, we serve a God of, of restoration, we serve a God of reconciliation, even when, or might I even say especially when, people find themselves in a very difficult situation, entirely of their own making, a product of sin. God's not done with them. God's not done with you very idea of reconciliation is about restoring, reconciling, making right. And so he says, return. In verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, and look at this, 
I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name We'd almost want to say Emmanuel there, right? Pretty familiar language, but he says Ishmael. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael means the God who hears. God who hears. Now verse 12, He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That's exactly what every mother wants to hear of her future child, right? And so you look at this here, and you might be inclined to think twice about all of this then, right? Some people might go, well, maybe, well, now we know a little bit more. This is going to be, this is going to be a difficult person. This is going to be a difficult child. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't proceed. I mean, the circumstances are rough to begin with, and now this kid's going to be trouble. But here's the thing. When we do this, when we focus in so much on circumstances, just like Sarah did, what we begin to, and just like Abram did just previously when God had refreshed his memory on the covenant again, is when we do that, when we, when we focus in so much, what we begin to forget is that God knows this. God knows this. God, you're saying, here's what's going to happen. And he's going to be trouble. But God's not going, <gasps> And I don't know what I'm going to do about it. No, God, God understands. God knows. Did God approve of Abram and Sarai's decision? No. Did they operate outside of his will? Yes. Was there a consequence then to their sin? Yes. You see, a lot of people want to say, oh, God must have condoned this. God never said anything about, hey, shame on you guys. You shouldn't have done this. It was built in. I mean, the fact that God right here is saying, hey, there's going to be some problems, is God saying, this wasn't my plan. That is God not condoning their decision because sometimes God just says, hey, there's, here's some natural consequences to your sin. Okay? So, so we know this about this, that, that they were outside of His will, He didn't approve of their decision, that there was a consequence to their sin, there would be many, and, and this child as a result of their decision, would become the father of the Arab nations. We'll see that genealogy later on in Genesis. Which then we know that because of him, and and him fathering then the Arab nations, that those Arab nations would serve as a source of conflict to the nation of Israel, even to this day. Yet here we see that God says he will bless them. What do we do with all that? Well, we look at this, and, and, and if ever you struggle with some of these things, you find yourself in a passage like this going, okay, I see now here a little bit of a balance of God's sovereignty and man's free will. That, in fact, both can function together. That mankind can do some pretty foolish things, some pretty stupid things, can operate outside of his will, can do things that he did not desire, nor did he condone, but that we still do them. But that God, because he is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, because he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, because God is the beginning of the end, because he is a God of foreknowledge, and because he understands that he is able to take those things and to say, and I'm still going to work it all together. My plan will not be upended. In essence, he says, I'm bigger than all of this. So then, in verse 13, she calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Laharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now here's what I want us to not miss. 
that the first person to give God a name in Scripture, to consider and to describe one of his attributes, is a pagan slave girl who is rejected and on the run. Does that give you any insight into the heart of our God? And might I add this, in light of the character of God that she has identified, that not only is she just a pagan slave girl who's rejected and on the run, but one that I would speculate has spent perhaps the entirety of her life, if not the most part of her life, feeling like no one sees her. And she says, you're the God who sees. You found me. You see me. And then she names the well the the place for one who lives who has seen God. (laughs) And in obedience, she returns. In verse 15, we read, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So she returns and she gives birth, and Abram names his son in accordance with God's word. And we won't get through all of chapter 17, but I want us to look at the first part of it here. Because here now he has this son, he has Ishmael. He's 86 years old. And then look, look to the beginning of chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. How much time has gone by? Somebody said 13? I heard it out there. 13 years. Remember what I said about God's timing? 13 more years. 13 years go by. What happened in this time? We don't entirely know. Why is this the next time we read of God appearing to Abram? We don't entirely know. We know at this point, even now, Sarai had given up hope when he was 86. And she sent him to be with Hagar. 13 years go by, she still doesn't have a child. If, If nothing else, we need to find ourselves looking at this and going, man, sorry God that I complained about that three day wait one time when you before you answered my prayer, right? (laughs) When I said amen and it was like two hours before you answered that prayer, like, sorry about that. I mean, honestly, we got to really consider that. I can't help but look at this and go, okay, so I had to wait 15 years. Whoop-de-doo. Right? That's really what it amounts to here. And we look at this and we have to ask ourselves the same question again in terms of what's God doing? Well, He's working. He's preparing. He's readying Abram. Now, here's the thing that we, we need to remember about who Abram is, who's about to become Abraham. Yes, as he becomes Abraham, he'll be the father of many nations, but what is he also considered the father of throughout Scripture? The father of faith. And it begins with this guy. You don't think he learned some aspects of faith? Trusting? And that God was going to bring through him his plan of salvation in its perfect timing? And so we have to look at this, guys, and, and, and if nothing else, say, God, I trust you, and I trust your timing. And your plan is perfect, even though sometimes it's hard. And so at this time, okay, so now he's, he's still Abram here, which Abram means exalted father, right? And he's going to become Abraham. So 13 years go by, the Lord appears, and what does he say? And it says, and he said to him, verse 1, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. 13 years go by. God comes back and he says, I'm Almighty God. That's El Shaddai. I am all-powerful. I am all-sustaining. Shaddai is the Hebrew word, based off the Hebrew root word for breast, 
for a woman's breast, specifically within the context of nursing. That freaks some people out. But it's a pretty cool thing to see that our all-powerful, almighty God is saying, I sustain you. And he says to Abram, at 99 years old. So those of you who think you're, you know, you're wrapping things up, <laughs> he says, walk before me and be blameless. He calls him to more. He challenges him. And he says, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. 13 years go by, he comes back and he says, remember, remember, I'm not done. I made a promise. I'm still going to do it. And so Abram, verse 3, falls on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. At this point, Abraham has the one boy, Ishmael, who's now 13 years old. And he says, You're going to be the father of many nations. God comes to remind him of his promise. He says, You may be 99 years old, but I am not done. I've made a covenant. I am El Shaddai. Almighty God, sustainer God, sufficient God. And he begins to remind Abram of the covenant, and then he says, and I'm going to give you a new name. It's time. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And look at this. From Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of many nations. And, and why? Why does he give him this new name now? He says it right here. I have made you a father of many nations. Was he a father of many nations at this particular point from his perspective? No, he was not. But God says, I've already done it. And guys, listen, that's what it is. You know, we say this, we make this statement, and you can take that to the bank, right? It's a way that people, I don't, people maybe say that as much anymore. But it used to be like, you can guarantee it, right? This is God's way of saying, listen, I've done this already. I'm going to change your name now. And such is then the confidence that we can have in a promise that God makes. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so he goes and he reiterates here what the covenant was and is. And notice in that just in that little paragraph there four times that God says what I will I will I will I will God's saying I'm going to do this and I'm reminding you of this it seems like maybe he's preemptively here saying you might be struggling a little bit you might be beginning to forget what I have said I'm going to do and then what we'll learn here is that God's also saying and it's about to happen and so before it happens I'm going to remind you of what I've said now what comes next and we got three minutes this is a really big thing to cover in three minutes, but let's do it. Follow along with me. Verse 9, it gets awkward. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So God says, This is what I'm doing. Here's what I'm going to ask you now to do. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now that got weird, right? You look at this and you say, I didn't see that coming. Abraham had to have said, I don't know where that came from. I don't understand this, right? Because this was not a common practice at the time. What we need to understand as we look at this here, and, 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 and this, be, this is it. It starts right here, and this is why now circumcision is such an important part of Israel's covenant with God and why it's upheld within the law that a Jewish-born boy on the eighth day shall be taken and circumcised, and it continues through to this day. It, it all goes back to this. It begins here because God said, this is what you're going to do. Now, it can seem to us when we look at this that this is a weird thing. Why, why would God specify this? This is a peculiar choice. But what we need to understand here, and again, we won't have the, we, we can't go into it enough tonight, and so we'll have to kind of revisit aspects of it um, next week. But what we kind of need to look at this as, in many respects, though I will say this, uh, there does seem to be over time significant evidence that supports the fact that circumcision leads to good health, hygiene, and virility, especially amongst the Jewish people, which many people believe that is why it's such a strong nation till still today in terms of their offspring, um, so that there is some aspect of health benefit to it, but I think that's really minor. God gives us insight into it later on in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in verses 12 through 16, we read this. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Verse 16, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. What I would submit to you is that the act of circumcision does many different things, but chief of which, no different than for us with baptism, is an outward sign of an inward change. That it's them saying that they are demonstrating and showing a commitment to God and to His covenant. Now then, as you dig into it further, what was the emphasis of the covenant? What was the covenant about? Well, it was about the seed of the promised son, right? I don't need to go into a sexual education session tonight. That should make sense. The emphasis was on the seed. So where would God put that sign? Where would he put that mark? Now, how is it? Why, why would this then serve as a sign? Was it to be a sign to the world every day? Well, no, they were to remain clothed. This wasn't going to be an outward sign to the world every day, but it was going to be between a man and his wife. And what was the relationship between a man and his wife intended to demonstrate? The relationship between Christ and his church, a covenant so that a wife could see that he is committed to the faith, that he is of the line of Abraham, right? So that a man could understand that I've made a choice, I've made a commitment. And then what was that practice? Well, it was literally a cutting, a cutting of a covenant, you might say. And what was to be removed but flesh? Think back just to a moment ago, 13 years for Abram, just one page for us, he did something in the flesh. Did he not? But now God comes to him and he says, I'm ready to do what I've promised, but I'm asking you something. I need you to do this. I need you to, 
to cut a covenant. I need you to set yourself apart. I need you to remove the flesh. I need you to make a commitment that before I do this, before I bring this promise, you need to understand that you're no longer operating in the flesh. You're operating in the Spirit. There are so many different things that we see happen through this act that though, yes, it can seem like an odd one, it's a way in which God is communicating something very important. Think about even what they were continually prone to. What was the sin of the people? What is the sin of the people still today? It's sin of the flesh. It's a pursuit of the flesh. So God also was in a way saying, I have ownership over all of this. You're mine. And then he says to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So he takes the same letter that he inserted into Abraham's name. It's the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He inserts it into both of their names. And now her name, as he says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And so she goes from Sarai, contentious, to Sarah, princess. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, now he's not laughing, mocking God here. This is sort of like, I can't believe this. Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before, Ishmael might live before you. Now here's what Abram's communicating, and I'll stop, okay? What Abram's communicating here is this is all too much. But then he kind of, and this is kind of cool, he comes back and he basically in the Hebrew, what this says here is he says to God, would you bless Ishmael? Because I really love him. And when he's asking him to bless him, he's saying basically, I, I hear what you're saying about Sarah, but I have this son. Would you just work through him? And what God says to him in verse 19 is no. You see how Abram prayed there? God, would you, would you take my plan? Would you take what I've done? Would you take the actions that I have taken? Would you take my prayers, my plans, and my performance and bless them? Can I impose what I've done upon you? And God says, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you'll call his name Isaac. And I'll establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Now, God is good. God is gracious. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Now God gives him a time. In verse 22, then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. Guys, God was merciful toward Abraham and merciful toward Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, but God had a plan. And he told Abraham, you need to submit to my plan. We too often come to God in prayer seeking his blessing on our plans instead of surrendering our plans to him. And so Abraham, he takes Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised in his son Ishmael, and all the men of his house, born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. And so it comes, <laughs> so he comes back, and you can only imagine as he pulls in all the guys in the house together, he says, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> and you know that some guys were like, See ya, right? <laughs> I'm out of here. I don't know what this, the, the old man's lost it, right? But no, and it shows the influence that Abraham had. 
that he comes back and he says, I heard from the Lord and listen, this is what's going to happen. And, and, and by the way here, the implication also here is he didn't just say, hey guy, can you start doing this? No, Abraham said, this is what's going to happen. And then he started doing it. He took care of it. He led by example. And, he, and it was to great risk as well because he essentially incapacitated every male in his household for a period of time. Right? So it was great risk in terms of these guys weren't able to work. They weren't able to defend them. There was a period of time where it was just like, we're out of commission. But he was willing to surrender. He was willing to surrender and to be obedient. Guys, listen. We've got to stop trying to impose through prayer, through our plans, through our performance upon God and instead be willing to say, no longer in the flesh, God, I surrender to you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word and the incredible things that we see within it. And Lord, the lessons we can take from it. And I pray that each of us here tonight, myself included, uh, even especially, Lord, that we'd be willing to recognize the ways in which, Lord, so often we take matters into our own hands, uh, that we want to impose our will upon you through, through our prayers, through our plans, Lord, through the steps that we take. Lord, help us to be a people that, like Abraham, Lord, remember your promises, surrender ourselves to them, Lord, in obedience, even if it's hard, even if it comes as a great sacrifice, Lord, even if it's painful, Lord, even if it means the loss of something, that, Lord, we trust your plan and that you are bigger than those things. Help us, Lord, to be obedient, the people that are obedient, Lord, a surrendered people, we pray. Father, we love you, we praise you, Lord, we give you thanks, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.